Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Greetings, everyone. This is Andrew. And this is Caleb. What you're about to listen to is When Diplomacy Fails. Zach does a great job talking about key points throughout world history where diplomacy just doesn't cut it anymore. And the human race reverts back to their animal instincts and goes into almost always a bloody, bloody conflict. Now, like I said, Zach does a great job, but he can't cover every time diplomacy fails. And that's where we come in. That's right. We're the Iroquois History and Legends podcast, and we deal with how the Northeastern Native American peoples dealt with this onslaught of new colonists coming. And we see how they dealt with the English, French, Dutch, Swedes, each other, and a whole lot more. A lot of times, diplomacy fails, and it gets messy. So when you're done with this show, come over and check us out. It's Iroquois History and Legends. We're on all major podcast apps. Or you can check us out at longhousepodcast.com. Thanks, everybody, and enjoy. Hello, history friends, and welcome to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks for joining us for what is episode 18. We've come a long way since we first started the Franco-Dutch War, and we've come a long way in general since we started this podcast all those years ago. Which reminds me, it's nearly our fifth birthday. On the 18th of May 2017, this podcast is five years old, and there's something very special coming your guys' way, so... I hope you'll join me for that, and I hope you're looking forward to it, because I haven't really shut up about it since the idea first came into my head. So yeah, we're nearly there. I'm also nearly getting married, and the Patreon is going really, really well. All of these are good things, and things are really looking up. Things are going really well at the moment, and I'm really delighted to bring you this latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails. So, if you guys would like to support us, please go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or just go to wdfpodcast.com. Maybe check out what else is on offer on our official website, guys. I think you'll really enjoy it. Have a mess around. Check out the blog, The Vassal State. I'm still really proud of that name, by the way. And maybe even the shop, because I am planning to create a shop eventually and slowly, slowly coming together. But perhaps by the time you guys are listening to this, it'll all be sorted out. Maybe. Anyway, either way, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Keeping it short this week, keeping it very short, because I want to just bring you guys the episode and I want you to enjoy it. So yeah. Other than that, please go and be fit. Tell people about this podcast. Tell people that love history that Zach Twomley talks about history every week, every Monday, because we're very reliable. We're trying to make Mondays better, but we're also trying to make history thrive because that's what When Diplomacy Fails is. It is where history thrives. So thanks for joining us. And if this is your first time listening to this podcast, then welcome as always. And I hope you'll stick with us just like the rest of you guys have stuck with us all these years. Okay, enough with the rambling. Let's get on it. I will now take you to the episode. Thanks, guys. So welcome back to the War History Friends. 
In the last episode, we focused on Charles II of Britain, how his subjects were becoming less than pleased with the war that was being waged against the Dutch, and how these feelings, amongst other issues, eventually pressured Charles to make peace with the Dutch in spring 1674. So, with Britain peaced out and the Imperial Diet declaring war on Louis XIV's France shortly after, it seemed as though the French war effort, initially launched with such zeal and passion, was destined to hit a roadblock. Indeed, there appeared to be little room for error, as armies in Spain, the Spanish Netherlands, along the Rhine, and increasingly in the freed-up Dutch Republic itself, were soon to be aimed against France. Under circumstances such as these, it was clear that the so-called Franco-Dutch War had entered a new phase. No longer was it an exclusively French or Dutch affair. Instead, this was the first great war that Louis XIV would wage. Europe couldn't know it yet, but it was the first of the Sun King's three wars of this size and scope. But let's see how this new phase of the war developed, as I take you to spring 1674. The king ought to give a little thought to squaring off the boundaries of his lands. This confusion of friendly and hostile fortresses is all most unsatisfactory, Whether it is accomplished by treaty or by a successful campaign, you must continue to preach the need to tidy up the borders. Vauban, in a letter to Louvois on creating what would become known as the Fence of Iron, late With the coalition officially partaking in this now Europe-wide war against Louis XIV's France, and with England no longer on side to defend French coasts after the spring of 1674, the once-designated Franco-Dutch War seemed to have transformed into something else entirely. As the late Johann de Witt had for so long hoped, a tenacious defence at home and an active diplomatic campaign abroad would put steel into potential alliance partners for the Dutch to call on, while the actions of the French and their blatant efforts to overhaul the permanent Spanish and Dutch Netherlands and reimagine them into something else entirely drew the ire of these same alliance partners and compelled them to declare war against France together. The Imperial Diet's declaration of war in May 1674 is normally viewed as the definite end of the Franco-Dutch War, as it evolved into Louis's first great conflict the first of three he would participate in during his reign. Thus, 1674 is also characterised by intense campaigning in both sides, as the resources of both the Habsburgs and Bourbons were more willingly invested. 1674 is also seen as the end of the Franco-Dutch aspect of the war because, even as William of Orange was running around at the head of an army, the French were pushed out of their last Dutch fortress by prizes in the Spanish Netherlands, in Franche Comte, and across the Pyrenees into Spain, while an avid defence under Marshal Turenne along the Rhine distinguished that French commander's record of service even further, as he frustrated Allied attempts to invade France through the vulnerable Alsace and Lorraine territories. 
In short, there was a lot going on in 1674. Not just the fact that Britain had been forced to make peace, as we saw in the last episode. We're going to do our best to cover it all in this episode. A good deal of campaigning did take place, but with some luck our narrative shouldn't descend into a dry detailing of which army moved where. What you should bear in mind is that France from spring 1674 onwards was working through its reserves of manpower, mobilising them to the corners of its borders in order to forestall the predicted Allied invasion. In diplomatic terms, only distant Sweden loomed as a potential ally of the French, since Paris still supplied the Swedes with their desperately needed subsidies. In the next episode, we'll examine this Franco-Swedish relationship in more detail, as well as investigate how the French managed to use the Swedish counterweight in 1675 to remove the immediate threat posed by Brandenburg and its high-profile great elector, Frederick William, who now campaigned with his nephew, William of Orange, against their mutual French enemy. All of this is to come next time, and in a sense, this is the episode I want to get through so that I can cover the more famous scenes, but hey, such is history, that we must work through what happened chronologically. Our story will, of course, be made all the better for it. The ordered evacuation of the Dutch Netherlands and the French fallback position on the fortress of Grave along the river Meuse represented a tactical decision by Louis and his commanders, but to some it represented an admission of defeat and weakness. Those that opposed the measure would be sacked and replaced, though, as there could be no room for bickering or disagreement where unified French strategy was concerned. The net result of this evacuation of the Dutch Republic was that 20,000 French troops could now be spared to use against the Spanish Netherlands, the Dutch could keep their waterlogged Republic, and the French soldier would certainly have been happy to see the end of that miserable part of the campaign. Louis also became a bit more realistic about the French prospects for victory at sea, and he tended to filter some of the resources from the navy from this point onwards to effect a better change in French manpower elsewhere. We will cover the nature of the French navy and the surprising facts about it in the extra episodes that you can access by being a patron, and they'll be available over July and August, but until then we're going to skirt around the navy and just leave it where it is for the moment. Combined with the exit of the English, though, this essentially gave the Dutch mastery over the seas, around France, as well as everywhere else, but it took some time before the Dutch could actually make use of it, because, it might surprise you to learn, the French actually possessed naval superiority, because they had more ships than the Dutch at this point. Although because of the fact that they were split between the two theatres of the Mediterranean and the North Sea, this superiority was rarely brought to bear, and the Dutch were able to take advantage of it. Well, with the Spanish distracted in the Spanish Netherlands, thanks to the freed-up militias, Louis set the task of launching a lightning invasion of Franche Comté from April 1674. Franche Comté had long been a thorn in the side of Louis, and indeed of French monarchs in the past. It is a strange product of the weird inheritance that European dynasties endure, but it was essentially a descendant of Spanish Burgundian holdings. Through the years it had been whittled away and left to degrade in its defensive capabilities by the Spanish, who invested more resources in the Spanish Netherlands instead, and left its defences down to a few major fortress towns, Besançon, Dole and Salem's, three of which were captured by France in a quick, connected siege campaign by the end of June wrapping up the whole campaign in that sensitive area for France and ensuring that Louis' forces would now be free to attack the Spanish Netherlands before the campaigning season ended. 
Meanwhile, the Allies had also been busy. At the end of July 1674, now at the command of an army, 65,000 strong, William covered the Imperial Siege of Grave, the last French possession in the Dutch Republic's lands. As we know, it would fall by October of that year, but William's coverage of the siege ensured that Allied attentions were tied to that region of the map of Europe, until it did. As his purpose was to guard against any French attempts to relieve the siege of Grave, the Prince of Condé's 45,000 strong army was the most blatant threat to the Allies at this juncture, so William of Orange moved to defeat him in open battle and force him out of the field. What followed was the bloodiest and some would say most horrendous battle of the war, the Battle of Senef on the 11th of August 1674. In an effort to envelop the larger Allied force, Condé became too reckless, and after initial successes that saw Condé surprise and overwhelm William's rear guard, the event became a terrible slugging match with point-blank salvos of muskets, exploding cannonballs and vicious hand-to-hand fighting across and around the now Belgian town of Senef. Only well into the night, after an exhausting day's battle, did both sides retire, with Condé claiming the victory because his force had come off the better. Indeed, his initial attack and use of partisans to harass William's swollen force had worked wonders, but once both sides could properly mobilise their forces, Condé wasn't able to make use of any genuine tactics, and the day was only really saved by the mettle of the veterans in French service. William of Orange had lost 15,000 to Condé's 10,000 men, but it is often considered a Pyrrhic victory due to William's subsequent reinforcement by German mercenaries and soldiers and garrison militia, etc., in the weeks that followed. While Condé, on the other hand, was unable to seize the initiative and pursue William's men as he had himself become too bloodied. So horrendous were the casualties that a French courtier later wrote on the Battle of Senef, We have lost so much by this victory that without the Te Deum and some captured flags brought to Notre Dame, we would believe we had lost the battle. Voltaire would simply comment on Senef that it was only carnage, while Vauban added himself, I believe that the enemies ought to seek a battle and we to avoid one, since to avoid fighting is the sure means to beat them. While Condé's sacrifice of Frenchmen came without any tangible benefits for French offensive ambitions, as Grave remained under siege and William as powerful as ever, the victory, however bloody, did hold back the Allied aims to strike directly into France for another year, which pleased Louis. The famous painting by Jean-Léon Jérôme shows Condé approaching Louis respectfully, while the so-called spoils of war, consisting of Dutch flags, are draped in the background. Considering the butcher's bill for the battle, Louis may have expected better results from Condé, but as we'll see, such battles would become more costly and the act of holding back the Allies more difficult as the war went on. Condé, for his part, would in fact seek his retirement within the year, crippled by gout, certainly, but perhaps also tiring of the apocalyptic battles which he had for so long endured. Of arguably more importance than Condé's struggles was the very real and very effective campaign conducted by Marshal Turenne, who constituted the most critical defence force at the disposal of the French. With the Imperials and their German allies poised to invade France along the Rhine, either through the river over the different crossings and into French territory, or through the more vulnerable regions of the country, such as Alsace, it would take a Herculean effort to ensure that no Allied troops either outnumbered or outmatched the French during this first true test of French metal. 
Turenne was more than up to the task, and his campaign of 1674 along the Rhine represents one of the most impressive and striking examples of what capable men could do in the era when given the chance. It was characterised by a few pitched battles, but it mostly revolved around capturing important settlements and then pressuring the inhabitants within to pay contributions. In other words, pay to not have their homes burned. This was a central facet of the French war strategy, and not to keep beating a dead horse, guys, but we will go into such issues as contributions during our extra episodes over the months of July and August. But anyway, over the course of Louis' varied wars, the levying of contributions, mostly from Germans along the Rhine, would constitute sometimes up to a quarter of the French incomes during wartime. They were, therefore, far too lucrative a practice to ignore. Another angle of Turenne's campaign was to prevent the Allied German armies from linking up, and to do this he had to strike at smaller forces preemptively and at just the right time. Most of these actions took place around or within the Palatinate, which, if you can remember back to our Thirty Years' War coverage, was one of the electorates of the Holy Roman Empire, whose elector, Frederick V, had touched off the Thirty Years' War by accepting the crown of Bohemia and scaring the Catholic daylights out of Ferdinand II, who was the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. By the 1670s, Frederick V's many children had grown up and had children of their own, and his descendants remained very much in power in the small and scattered electorate. Whereas before... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like, what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Where the threat to Frederick had once come from the east and south, in the form of the swollen Habsburg and Spanish armies, now it came from the west, from France. Seeing the Rhine as a critical aspect of the defence of France, Louis wanted to ensure that its most important fortresses were in French hands, while considerable pressure was exerted to make sure that those towns, which were not occupied, understood who their new master was. Despite the deprivations of the Thirty Years' War, the Palatinate remained a rich and prosperous statelet, and its enduring struggle in the path of French armies was a constant tale of European relations, from the 1670s to the early 1690s. The worst experiences of those unfortunate citizens living in these lands are still to come in our story, unfortunately for them, 
But for the moment, it was enough for the elector, Charles Louis, who was the second son of Frederick V, the Winter King, to have maintained a pro-French course in the hope that, sandwiched as he was between the Holy Roman Empire and France, that this would be the best guarantor for his security. The most fundamentally important result of Charles Louis's diplomatic efforts to coerce France since his return to the Palatinate after the Peace of Westphalia was his daughter's marriage to Louis XIV's brother, Philippe, which essentially granted Charles Louis some important in-laws since the marriage was first arranged in 1671. Through this marriage, Charles Louis hoped his electorate would be guaranteed some greater security. It may serve our interests to note that, after Charles II's sister, Minette, died in 1670, Louis's brother Philippe was due for a new wife anyway, so the searching for a replacement was bound to proceed apace. Yet, the inherently fascinating nature of this era means that the whole spiel that I've just gone on here gives me the opportunity to introduce to you guys one of the most striking, relatable, and well, profoundly funny characters of the time period too. Thanks in part to the ream of letters she wrote to all members of her wide-reaching and extended family, we know more about the era and more about women during it than we have any real right to as history friends, and you'll be happy to know that I have a copy of these letters on standby for us to make use of as an invaluable primary source for the period. So, who was this voracious letter writer? Well, her name was Elizabeth Charlotte, though she often went by the name Lizalot to her friends. She was the new wife of Philippe, Duke of Orléans, and because of the intermarried nature of the royal families, she was also the granddaughter of Elizabeth of Bohemia, the Winter Queen, but more notably, she was the great-granddaughter of James I of England, Scotland and Ireland. Her aunt Sophia would marry into the Hanoverian family, and because of this, it was her cousin George who would ascend to the throne of Britain in 1714 as George I. In short, then, she had much royal blood running through her veins, and this is how most historians tend to reconcile the reasons why she was pledged to marry the grandly pompous and decadent brother of the King of France, when so many more splendid candidates existed for Philippe's hand. We won't dwell on her too much here, since we have to go back to the Rhine, unfortunately, but keep her in your mind as a figure of profound importance to us, whose letters shed a much-needed perspective on the era, which we will be making much use of going forward. By July 1674, after running off the imperial forces, Turenne was able to advance on Heidelberg and open Charles Louis' lands for contributions. Those Palatine lands that didn't pay were burned, but by and large the French made great profits here, as Philippe's new Palatine bride, who also had to convert to Catholicism to make the marriage viable, would undoubtedly have looked upon her homeland with great pity. The divided nature of French troops at the time meant that, while Condé campaigned in the Spanish Netherlands, Louis wished to send reinforcements to Turenne along the Rhine, but eventually decided to camp the reinforcements halfway between the two armies, and kind of parcel these soldiers up depending on who would need them most. Louis was worried that occupying the Palatinate would push great numbers of German princes into the already growing anti-French camp, but Turenne maintained that to withdraw from the Palatine altogether would reduce the hold that France could command on not just those electors' resources, but the Rhine itself. If Louis got cold feet about draining the Palatine, he did so because he continued to fear that the Imperials would exploit the weakness in the French border in Alsace and Lorraine, whose Duke, the Duke of Lorraine, don't forget, served in the Habsburg armies, and his son would do so as well. 
Yet these cold feet seemed to warm in the face of Turenne's arguments, who by the end of July 1674 had made great profits from the unfortunate electorate. John A. Lynn noted on the occupation, Throughout the summer of 1674, the Palatinate suffered, for Turenne supplied his army by exploiting its resources. Making war feed war by living off enemy or neutral resources was a goal of 17th century commanders, and in his long years of campaigning in Germany, Turenne had become expert. The terrible nature of the campaigning was made worse by the French tendency to destroy all means of sustaining an army between Philipsburg and the Necker fortresses, which was essentially a patch of well, what had once been prosperous territory that straddled the Palatine state. Because of French excesses, many of the Palatine citizens took to sniping at the French soldier, who in turn, predictably enough, responded with marauding and pillaging himself. The burning, looting and deprivations of the campaign persuaded many a German prince, particularly the smaller ones, but also some notable ones, such as the Bishop of Munster, who'd been the French quintessential mercenary up to this point, and even the Elector of Bavaria, to join their emperor, perhaps not instantly but eventually, out of fear and outrage to what was happening to the Palatinate. Though Louis flip-flopped between fearing the results of Turenne's Palatine campaign and acknowledging the need for the monies levelled there, the likes of Louvois saw the policy as one central to French security. Louvois, as the French Minister for War, insisted that those villages who refused to pay the contributions were in fact dishonouring France. Incidentally, the previous campaigns of burn and pillage netted some results, as an Allied army 30,000 strong was forced to withdraw from the region in September, rather than besiege the French stronghold of Philipsburg, since said Allied army could find no forage. However, the Allies were not so easily put off from further efforts. Marching south to Strasbourg, also located strategically on the Rhine, the Allied commander pressured the city's leaders to hand that city over to their control and the pressuring did the trick. By the end of September 1674, Allied forces had not only acquired Strasbourg in a bloodless coup, but they'd also crossed into Alsace, where the city resided, and they now threatened France through the very avenue that Louis had always feared. Learning of further bad news that the Elector of Brandenburg was en route with 20,000 men to reinforce the already existing 30,000 Allied forces, Turenne aimed to divide and conquer while he had the chance, he would have to attack the Allies within the week while they moved within Alsace. Over the night of the 2nd to the 3rd of October, Turenne marched his troops double time to position them between the Allied army and Strasbourg, forcing the Imperial commander to turn back and prevent Turenne from disrupting the Allied supply and communication lines. It seemed to do the trick, but in the resulting battle both sides lost equal numbers of men. And although the so-called Battle of Ensheim is represented as a great French victory today, it was tactically no more than a draw. Turenne hadn't sufficiently destroyed the Germans to prevent their linking up with the great elector of Brandenburg, which meant that he was soon outnumbered almost two to one. To offset this disparity in numbers then, Turenne retreated further west into Alsace and awaited the arrival of reinforcements from Condé's force and those militias which could be spared. With the numbers advantage, the Allied Imperial Brandenburg Army settled in for the winter of 1674, confident that their position around Alsace would be secured. Numbering nearly 50,000 men, they could rest assured that no rational commander would attack them in the harshness of winter, where forage was as impossible as supply. Understanding this, 
Turin sought to do the impossible. Thanks to the administrative wizardry of Louvois, he was able to organise for vast supplies of bread and oats during the difficult months, negating the need for forage, and he marched out with his best 30,000 men in the dead of night in early January 1675. On the morning of the 5th of January 1675 in the Battle of Turkheim, Turenne achieved what many believed was his greatest victory. Arriving on the field and instilling much surprise in the assembling Allied forces, Turenne struck before they could forge a well-organised army, and thus his well-prepared and confident force was able to prey upon the smaller pockets of men that made up the 50,000 men in the Allied army. Although the great elector of Brandenburg tried to rally his forces and get them ready for the battle, the French also came armed with a strategy. Turenne feigned an attack on the Allied centre and right, before striking with great force at the left flank. The Germans buckled shortly thereafter, leaving behind 3,000 prisoners and losing as many as 5,000 men, as well as most of their cannon. Their combined army then retreated to Strasbourg, thereby abandoning the interior of Alsace along the French border to Turenne. In other words, by this action Turenne had both achieved a stunning victory and reinforced French security along the Rhine. On the 22nd of January 1675, he settled his troops into winter quarters for a well-deserved rest, confident that he had greatly aided his master's war plans. As if reflecting the omnidirectional nature of the war in 1674, a further front was opened along the Pyrenees with Spain, which quickly paled in importance to events in Italy, as a revolt in Sicily against the Spanish gave France further opportunities to take advantage of the situation there. The Franco-Spanish campaigns in the disputed Roussillon province was characterised by Spanish victory, because the French commander in question, the German commander in fact, Friedrich Hermann von Schomburg had to rely mostly on militia drawn from the south of France. At this disadvantage in professionalism to his Spanish opposite, Schomburg repeatedly felt hampered in the theatre, and by June 1674, he had lost a series of important battles, though admittedly on a much smaller scale than the likes of the Rhine or Spanish Netherlands. Just at that moment, a revolt began in Sicily, though, and by September the French were actually able to send some aid to the rebels by sea, while also attempting more daring raids into Catalonia, which, if we know our Franco-Spanish history, has always been a handy source of rebellion for the French. Again, Schomburg would be constrained by his lack of actual soldiers, and if we were to put this in terms of Rome total war lingo, I imagine him attacking the Spanish over and over again with a load of the Roman Town Watch unit, since we all know how effective they are getting the job done. And if you don't get that reference, go and play Rome Total War, try and use the Town Watch unit to do anything at all, and you'll see what I mean. By the end of 1674, Schomburg had at least launched a number of sorties into the Spanish region of the Pyrenees, and he had been able to put a number of towns there under contributions while reinforcing his position. All things considered, considering especially the lack of actual soldiers he had at his disposal, it wasn't a bad result for a definite sideshow of the war. With the major campaigns underway in the Spanish Netherlands, along the Rhine and to a lesser extent, along the Pyrenees and into the Mediterranean, the original Dutch element of the Franco-Dutch War seemed to have been all but abandoned by Louis. Now roped into fighting a multi-front war against enemies with greater combined resources than he, it would surely be only a matter of time before France was overwhelmed. Turenne could surely not hold back the tide of the Germans forever, and Condé would have retired within the year, 
leaving the command of French forces in the Spanish Netherlands to less experienced hands. Faced with such pressures, it is perhaps little wonder that by the end of 1674, a concerted French diplomatic effort had been sent to one of the key allies and beneficiaries of French subsidies, the Swedes. The intrigues that brought the Swedes into the war, primarily to offset the challenge posed by the always tenacious Elector of Brandenburg, would seem on the surface to represent the great Elector of Brandenburg's doom, though in time it would cement his legend. It had been a difficult and dangerous few months, but William of Orange could at least console himself with the fact that the Dutch Republic was now poised to take the fight back to France. Having definitively survived the initial onslaught, the order of the day for 1675 was no longer merely survival, but revenge. Okay guys, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and before we skedaddle, it's only fair that we read out the patrons for this podcast. And those patrons are, starting with, starting from the 2nd of April, Peter H., Diplomat, Derek U., Envoy Extraordinaire, Stuart K., Diplomat, Michael VDW., Embassy Intern, James L., Diplomat, David K., Diplomat, Jeremiah T. Diplomat, and a diplomat who just made it in time, Robin K. Thanks to all of you for signing up and supporting this podcast this week, guys. I super, super appreciate it. And it's great to see the bank of diplomats grow because it means that all of you guys are going to get some pretty awesome goodies. In fact, those patrons who I sent out the care package to last week or so should be getting them around now. I've received a few confirmations that they have in fact gotten their swag as they call it i know sorry about that i know i know but they received their merchandise and they're happy with it and they're telling people about it they're talking about it and that's what matters so thanks very much guys all you diplomats all you patrons however much you give whenever you give it or for whatever reason you decide to give it for i really really appreciate it and remember this is the best way to make this podcast grow and thus make history thrive. So thanks very much. You're doing me a service and you're doing the Discipline of History a service too. Alrighty, thanks for listening. This has been When Diplomacy Fails, the Franco-Dutch War. And I'll see you guys soon. Okay, history friends, thanks very much for listening to this episode. Before we get out of here, it's only fair to list off the patrons for this past week. Starting from the top of the week, we have Mike S, Envoy Extraordinaire, Daryl H, Diplomat, Andrew D, Diplomat, Murray, Diplomat, Dan V, Diplomat. Alrighty, that's it for this week, guys. Thanks very much for all your support, and welcome, 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 all of you new, wonderful, lovely patrons who are now enjoying the extra feed. Remember, it's never too late to join up, folks. Go to wdfpodcast.com or patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. You know the drill by now. I'm going to get out of here and munch on an Easter egg. Happy Easter. Take care of yourselves. And I'll be seeing you all soon. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.